Welcome to the Richardson Seventh-day Adventist Podcast. I'm so excited for you to join us. Each week, we'll bring you a sermon from one of our ongoing series. This week, we continue our journey through Game Changer. It's a term that you often hear associated with sports, but it really applies to everything or anything. So enjoy, and let's get to it. Good afternoon. My name is Stephen Gray. I teach at North Dallas Adventist Academy, but I feel like there are so many new faces, I really need to introduce myself because I know this place better than you know this place, and you've probably been here a few years, but I've been here a lot of years. You see, your Academy, North Dallas Adventist it began right here at Richardson Adventist Church. Amen? Isn't it amazing what happens when God gets a hold of an idea and then we get out of the way and let God grow that idea? I didn't hear a good amen, but, but that's okay because it's not what I say that's going to make you Shout, it's not what I say or do that's going to make you appreciate what God has. It's the love that he gives us in spite of the praise that we don't give. I bring you greetings from North Dallas Adventist Academy. Greetings from Acts 2 Seventh-day Adventist Church, of which I'm a member. And I say to myself, Welcome home. It's a good place to be. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, I just ask that you would fill this mortal vessel with your word. And I pray that I would not impede what you already have begun today. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, um, Elsie, look at you. I see so many people that I know so well and love so much. It's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to be here at Richardson Adventist Church. You know, often we have a higher opinion of ourselves than we ought to. Mr. Hill, do you know sometimes we walk around believing that we are something and we're not? In fact, I hazard a guess that we in this room quite possibly fall prey to this disease more than people who might be driving up and down Beltline Road. I think that we have this issue because we're good people. You a good person? Yeah, I'm a good person. Yet, sometimes that, that idea is deceptive. I heard a joke by Joel Osteen. His theology is all wrong, but I think the idea is right. 
He said that three women died and went to heaven. Uh, it already starts. Uh, three women died and went to heaven. They were met at the gates by Peter. So as they're coming to the pearly gates, Peter says, listen, I'm in charge of orientation here and enforcement. We have one rule, one rule here. Mr. Pena, one rule. Do not step on the ducks. That's it. Come to heaven, you can do anything you want, but don't step on the ducks. You can slide down the giraffe's neck. You can curl up in the panda's arms, but do not step on the ducks. Ladies look around and they say, sounds like a good deal. It's an easy thing to fulfill. Don't step on the ducks. Of course, I won't step on the ducks. Peter opens the pearly gates and the three ladies walk in. And lo and behold, heaven is full of ducks. This is going to be harder than we thought. So as they carefully pick their way around the ducks on day one in heaven, one of the ladies steps on a duck. The duck makes a whole bunch of racket, and suddenly Peter appears. You broke the rule. The lady said it was an accident. Peter said, accident? I'm sorry. There's just one rule in heaven. Don't step on the ducks. You stepped on a duck. Here's your punishment. Peter goes around the corner, and he brings the ugliest man this woman has ever seen. Out of, he's overweight. He, he smells bad. His hair is messed up. And Peter says, uh, your punishment for the rest of eternity is to be shackled to this man. Quickly, he handcuffs them both, and the woman says, but no appeal. She walks off. The two ladies are thinking, heaven is kind of a harsh place, but we can do this. And so they pick their way around the ducks. About a week later, the second lady she wasn't paying attention. She was looking down the streets of gold, talking to somebody, and she backed up and stepped on a duck. Oh, my goodness. Immediately, Peter shows up, and behind him is the second ugliest man that anyone has ever seen. Mr. Pena, this guy was horrible looking. He didn't look anything like you. <laughs> Peter says, you know the drill. The lady says, but you know the drill. You stepped on a duck, you get handcuffed, and you spend eternity with him. The other lady is horrified, and she says, you know what, I'm not ever going to lift my feet off the ground. I will slide my feet 
I'll move the ducks this way. And she is doing a great job. A month goes by, half a year, a whole year, and Peter shows up. And she goes, uh-uh-uh-uh, hadn't stepped on a duck. Peter says, I'm not here for that. Behind Peter is the most handsome specimen of a man she has ever seen. She brings this man and says, you will be handcuffed to him for eternity. And she gladly presents her wrist to get handcuffed. And as she's walking down the street with her new prize, she mutters to herself, I don't know what I did to deserve this. And the man says, I don't know what you did, but I stepped on a duck. <laughs> you see, We often have a higher opinion of ourselves than we ought to. I'm not saying anything, but some of y'all look like you stepped on a duck. <laughs> you know, when we listen to the words of Jesus, he can bring us back down to earth. He can give us that reality check that we need. If you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, we're going to look at a situation that Jesus has been presented with. Now, understand this. Jesus has been preaching sermons. He's been ministering to the poor. He's been doing wonderful things. Kim, in fact... Jesus surrounds himself with people who they just don't seem like they should be around Jesus. Luke chapter 15 verse 1 starts this way. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. <gasps> he eats with sinners. By saying this, they were insinuating some things about Jesus. They had already heard people refer to Jesus as this amazing prophet, and so they began to insinuate if Jesus truly were a prophet, then he would know the manner of people that were touching him, the manner of people that he was dining with. He would be able to know exactly the character of these vile people that he's walking with. So he either must not be a prophet or he can't be righteous. And so they whispered. Now Jesus is faced with this dilemma. 
You see, Jesus' mission is not to save everybody who loves him, to save everybody who hates him, to say he's not picking and choosing. He wants to save all of us. Doesn't it say in the scriptures that he is not willing that even one should perish? So Jesus is on this mission, and he's reaching out to people who don't look like him. They got body piercings. They're in homosexual relationships. They've been taking drugs. They're abusing spouses. And he surrounds himself with these people. And these people actually listen to him. And so the Pharisees and the priests, the leaders of the church of that day, they can't stand the idea that there are people like this that they have been condemning year after year who will sit quietly and listen to every word that flows from Jesus' mouth. They become jealous. If he were a prophet, he'd know how to treat these people. Make them be good first. Make them be good and then accept them. That's how we treat them. Make them be good first. You all aren't like that here at Richardson, are you? Somebody said no, very weakly. No, no. Make them be good first. Something wells up in Jesus. He can't open the scripture, Elsie. He can't open the scripture and say, look, God is a God of love because they're not listening to scripture at this time. So Jesus does what Jesus does. He tells a story. In fact, he tells three stories. And we can take the third story and break it in two, making it four. Because he pairs up these stories. You guys know the first story. First story is the parable of the lost sheep. Everybody knows how it goes. Kevin, you got 99 sheep. One's missing. But you can't know that that one is missing while they're all just wandering around. So the shepherd carefully guides his sheep as the sun is tipping toward the horizon. He brings his sheep into a sheltered area and he beds them down. Did you know that shepherds bed their sheep down? David used to do it. David, David would bring his harp and he would strum his harp and he would sing the songs that he had written. And the sheep would be assured of the shepherd's voice because you know if the sheep know their shepherd's voice, they follow him. And the, shepherd, the sheep would tuck their legs underneath them and lay down assured that they were protected. What a wonderful thing. I can imagine this shepherd 
all of the sheep have bedded down, and he begins counting. One, two. Did you? I was just a little. That was an extra one, Ruth. That was an extra one. They went over their heads, but no. He was counting sheep. Got it. Okay. One, two. It's just dawning on you. Just a little wave is coming. 96, 97, 98, 99. Wait a minute. One, two, three, four, five, 96, 97, 98, 99. It's got to be wrong. By the way, they didn't count sheep that way at all. They actually tied knots in rope. And as they would see a sheep, they would tie, and they really fast at it. They'd tie this knot, tie this knot, and then they'd count the knots. 99. One is missing. What do you do when you have 99 of your sheep and one is missing? Well, I'll tell you what my students would say. 99% ain't bad, right? 99% ain't bad if you're not the 1%. And Jesus is the God of the 1%. So I can see this shepherd stick his staff in the ground just in case any of the other sheep wake up and, and look up. They, they want to see some assurance that their shepherd wants them to be in this place. And they might just rouse in the middle of the night and look up, and if they see his staff there, they know this is where we're supposed to be. And that shepherd strikes out across the land looking for the lost sheep. Now, I told you, these things are in pairs because in the four parables, you got the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son and the lost other son. The lost sheep and the lost son are paired together. See, the lost sheep and the lost son are entities that got themselves into the situation that they are in. Mr. Camacho, they did it themselves. The sheep, he, he might have like, oh, wait a minute. The shepherd's calling, but there's a tuft of grass over there that needs eaten. And I planned to tend. I don't know why a sheep has that kind of an accent. I planned to tend to that tuft of grass over there. And so he goes over and he gobbles it up. It reminds me of when I took some students to the State Fair of Texas. John, Rebecca Ledford was with that group. Remember Rebecca? We were all in the auto exhibit, looking at all of these sleek, shiny cars. And I had instructed all of the students, all 11 of them, stick together. But if, by some mishap, you, are, you lose the group, stay where you are 
we will come and get you. Very explicit instructions. Mr. Pena, I pride myself on very explicit instructions. If only the sheep would follow my instructions. Well, we were in the auto exhibit hall, and Rebecca, one of my fifth graders, was waiting to sit in the new Chevrolet Corvette prototype but some couple was sitting there for a long time, and I'm going, hey, Rebecca, we're getting ready to leave. So all 10 of us, we all head on out the exhibit hall, and just as Rebecca's turning to leave, the couple gets out of the car. So she seizes her chance. She jumps into the car, sinks into that luxurious leather, puts her hands on the steering wheel, imagines herself driving down the highway. I'm only going to be here for a second. Plays with the gear shift, looks at console, and I don't know how long she was there. But by the time she looked up, we were long gone. The shepherd and his ten sheep we're walking to the next exhibit hall, and Rebecca, who had gotten herself into a situation, tried to find us. Mistake number one, if you're a lost sheep, don't try to find the shepherd. You understand that? If you're a lost sheep, don't try to find the shepherd. The shepherd will find you. Most of the time, our problems arise when we're the sheep who's lost, know we're lost, and then we start attempting to solve our problem. When you have no idea what your problem is, don't try to find the shepherd. Let the shepherd find you. Well, I guess we had walked around for maybe 10 minutes, and I started counting my sheep. Hey, where's Rebecca? Well, Mr. Gray, last time I saw her was in the auto exhibit. All right, everybody, pair up now. We're going back to the auto exhibit. Got to go get Rebecca. Rebecca, however, is not in the auto exhibit hall. She is wandering around looking for us. What does a shepherd do when he's lost one of his sheep? You know, some of you guys said, 99% ain't bad. It ain't bad if you're not Rebecca, and if you're not Rebecca's dad, Larry, it, it ain't bad. But I have to deliver 11 sheep back to their families, not 10. So we begin searching all over. We start talking to the police officers and it turns out that they were just on a shift change. So we're talking to the wrong people. The people we need to talk to, they've already gone home. So I begin calling. I call Rebecca's dad and I said, listen, I'm bringing the 10 students back to the school to have them get picked up. And then you and me are going back to the fair 
to look for Rebecca. We get back to the school at 4 p.m. because we've been looking all day for this child. Can't find her. Can you imagine what Larry Ledford and what they're going through? Their daughter is missing in the state fair. Have you been to the state fair of Texas? We jump into his truck and we rush back to the state fair of Texas. And by now, the Friday that we're there, the sun has set. It's Friday night at the State Fair of Texas, and two Sabbath keepers are running around trying to find this man's daughter. We're talking to police. We're searching, and one of the police officers we talked to said he got a call from one of the officers that there's a girl somewhere on the midway where all the carnival rides are, and... They don't know who, this, you know, this is pre-cell phone. I don't know how we even, this is pre, scared me to, we rushed to the midway and we find Rebecca there. She's been crying for hours, didn't know how to get a hold of anybody, wandered around and we found her. And you know, Al, as soon as Rebecca's dad got her home. You know he beat the living tar out of her, right? <laughs> do you think that do you think that her father needed to spank her for being lost? Isn't it ridiculous parents when we beat our kids for being lost? They're lost. They got punished already. Why are we going to beat them for being lost? Do you beat yourself when you get lost following GPS and you don't know where you are? No. <laughs> Is it any wonder that when the prodigal son gets home, his dad doesn't say, you know, I'm glad you're here, but I'm going to beat the living tar out of you because you know what you put us through? Do you know how much money you burn through? And now, and now we've got to have AIDS testing on you. You know, we sanitize the whole prodigal son story, but the Bible tells us he spent it on prostitutes. He spent it on drugs. He was not a good guy at all. If there's anyone who needs to be punished... Shouldn't it be the prodigal son? How dare the father stand on the rooftop searching every day? We also lose track of the time because we think it was just like a week he was gone or a month. He was gone years. It took time to burn through all of those resources. It took time to come to himself. The lost sheep and the prodigal son are two of a kind. They are lost because they got into it themselves. And you know that the shepherd and the father react to them the same way. They 
hug and hold the lost item. They bathe the sheep. He throws a, 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 a robe to cover the shame of his lost son. He says, kill a fatted calf. We're going to have a party. My son who was lost, he's been found. Invite the, the, oh, the whole world. Everybody should be celebrating. There's no shame when somebody who's lost comes back. Richardson, there's no shame when somebody who's lost comes back. There's no, well, we're going to have a board meeting uh, because when you left, you said a few things and we need to um, have a resolution of acceptance passed before you can come back over here. You know there are churches that would do that. There are churches that would, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I see you coming back here, and in tow, you have that little one. You know what she did? Where's her husband? She ain't got no husband. What? And she wants to teach Crater Roll Sabbath School? <gasps> so we put them through the screening process. You notice in this parable, there ain't no screening process. My son was lost. He's back. Put a ring on him and treat him like he never left. And remember, any of you servants, remember, he's the boss's son. Don't mess with him. That's what my father, that's my father. Well, there are still two more, there are two more stories, two more parables. You got that pair that got into this mess, and they know they're in the mess, and they know it's their own fault, and we know how the Savior treats them. But you got the other two, the lost coin. Now, it's kind of hard for us to relate to the lost coin, because here in the United States, Coins don't mean very much at all. If I lose a coin, I, well, I lost a coin. In fact, I empty my pockets of coins, I put it on the dresser, and the next day it's gone because my wife takes it and she dumps it into a big jar. I'm not missing a coin. Now, maybe if it was a rare coin that I lost, but if we had rare coins, we'd have them framed and they'd be put somewhere safe or they'd be in a safety deposit box. I'm not carrying around coins, right? So I think that if, if Jesus were telling us this parable here, it would be more like, um, it would be more like when I was flying back from Central America. I'd been there a week as I was investigating a mission trip a construction site, and I came back to Miami International. Now, you know when you, when you come back to the United States, it's a whole different experience than when you uh, are in another country. In fact, when you're coming through immigration at the United States, it's carpeted, 
ceiling is high, air conditioning is blowing, it's clean. And I'm, maybe I'm not the most patriotic person in the world, but when I'm coming back from outside of the United States, and I come in, I do think about, God bless the USA. You know when that immigration officer says, uh, Mr. Gray, where have you been? And I go, oh, I was in uh, Honduras. Or, uh, uh, what were you doing there? Well, we were planning a mission trip and construction. And he goes, well, uh, stamps the thing, goes, welcome back to the United States, Mr. Gray. I feel good. I'm back in the United States. And one of the best blessings that's in the United States are the bathrooms of the United States of America. <laughs> you laugh. You laugh. But you all know I have not found any restroom like the Bucky's restrooms <laughs> anywhere outside of the United States. I stop at Bucky's even if I don't have to go to the bathroom. Well, when you've been a week in Central America and you come back to the United States of America, I take advantage of all that the United States offers. So I'm lugging all my bags and I gotta have a connecting flight, but I'm just glad to be back. And I say, well, let me go to the restroom before I go wait on my connecting flight. And as I go into the restroom, it is like, this is my lucky day, Kim. It is like, as I, it's like having green lights all the way to work. Sometimes with green lights all the way to work. Uh, Marcus lives with us, and we're driving along, and it's green, green. And the other day I went, wow, look at that, green, green. oh, red. So... We were, just yesterday, we're driving, green, green, green. I'm going, oh. So then I went, hey, Marcus, it looks like we're getting green. He goes, yeah, I know, I didn't want to say anything. I don't want to mess it up. Oh, red. But it was just one red light all the way to NDAA, just one red light. Woo, perfect day. Well, when I went into that restroom, Crowded terminal, international terminal. I walk into the restroom, and as I'm looking for a stall, the handicap spot opens up. Somebody comes out of the handicap spot, and I just go straight in, and it's spacious. It's like a one-bedroom apartment in there. I have places to put my bags. There's a sink, a sink. Inside your stall, you have all the privacy. I was thinking of moving in to that place because the bathroom was so luxurious. I loved it. Well, I did what I had to do. Came out, washed my hands, washed my hands inside my apartment. Came out, <laughs> grabbed all my bags, making sure you got everything, and then I headed on down to my gate. And as I sat down, you know what we Americans do, first thing, don't want anybody to sit next to me, take your backpack, put it in the seat next to you. 
take your suitcase, your carry-on, put it right there next to your legs, and then reach for your phone. So I did that. Backpack, carry-on, no phone. No phone. Oh, no. You know, when you can't find your phone and you're supposed to have your phone and your heart starts beating, boom, 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 no phone. And then you start racing through your mind. Where was I when I last had my phone? And you're just going, oh, and here's the problem. I see the phone because my, my father has an issue. He, puts, he wears one of these little belt things. My father has drowned three phones going to the restroom because he has that little clip. I don't wear a clip, but I'm scared to death of dropping my phone into a commode. So the first thing I do, I take the phone and I put it down somewhere away from the water, away from everything, because I am not going to have that story at Thanksgiving. Why you got in your phone? Because I dropped it. And we made fun of my dad all the time that he's dropped it in the commode. So my phone is safe and I see my phone. It's in that spacious handicap stall. So my immediate instinct, run. Run back, get your phone. Except, remember I'm at the airport and I'm traveling by myself and I can't leave my bags here and the people that are on my connecting flight look kind of sketchy. So I have to carry everything. I can't even ask somebody, hey, would you watch this? Because they'll be going, why you want me to watch this? You understand? We're all at the same level. They think I'm sketchy. I think they're sketchy. Nobody's trusting each other. So I grab my backpack, grab my carry-on, go as fast as I can back to the bathroom. I see people coming in and out of that bathroom, and I'm thinking, oh, where is my, is my phone, please? I rush into the bathroom, Mrs. Roque. I rush in, and... There's a man coming out of my stall, holding my phone, giving it to the bathroom attendant. And I'm, praise God, I found my lost coin. My phone is safe. If Jesus were telling this parable, he would call it the parable of the lost phone. Because that means something to us. But here's where that would break down. The woman who lost her coin didn't lose her coin in an airport. She lost her coin at home. Remember it? The parable says she swept the house, the dirt floor, moved all the furniture just trying to find her coin. And when she finds it, you know, this is her marriage dowry. This is the money that she's going to leave her daughter when her daughter gets married. When she finds the, the coin, she invites all the ladies of town, come to my house, I'm cooking a meal. The lost coin has been found. I have found the lost coin. Do you know something? That lost coin didn't know he was lost. When that lost coin slipped off of that nightstand and fell behind the bed, 
the lost coin just lay there. It was no big deal. The lost coin didn't know. Do you know something else? The older brother of the prodigal son wasn't lost at an airport either. He was lost at home. Parents, did you hear that? The older brother of the prodigal son was lost at home, doing everything that his parents told him to do. He'd smile when they say, why don't you go plow the North 40? And he'd do it. When they say, hey, um, go round up the sheep and shear them, he'd do it. And all the while, the father is, what a good son. What a good son I have. But little does he know that good son is just as lost as the other son. And he won't know it until it gets demonstrated and he can see it for himself. See, the lost coin and the lost son, eldest son, are two of a pair. The eldest son doesn't even know. He doesn't even know he's lost. All he knows is, I got a routine. Get up in the morning, brush my teeth, wash my face, bathe, put your clothes on, find out what's needed to be done, go out in the field and do it, be tired and sweaty, come home, don't want to hear dad whine about his lost son anymore, turn on ESPN, fall asleep in front of the TV set, and rinse and repeat. That's what the eldest son was doing. Consumed with, why does all I have to do everything? At least when that brat of a little brother was here, he'd do some of the work, now I've got to do everything. Look at Luke chapter 15, verse 25. Ruth, I'm going to do a little grammar lesson because um, I'm a teacher and I do that kind of thing. Luke chapter 15, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Meanwhile, what a word. So I looked up what meanwhile meant. And as I started just marinating on the word meanwhile, meanwhile, it says it means during the intervening time or at the same time, meanwhile. You know, you can't have a meanwhile unless you're so consumed with your own problems 
that you can't see anybody else's. See, the prodigal son is gone, and his father is mourning the loss of his son. But in the eldest son, who should be mourning the loss of his brother, he's just upset because he has to do all the work and listen to his father grieve over his lost son. So the eldest son gets a meanwhile. Unbeknownst to the eldest son, we could call it that, right? Unbeknownst to the eldest son, the world was still spinning. See, I praise God that we serve a God of the meanwhile. Because if we had to depend on each other to lift us up, sometimes I am so consumed with my own problems, I can't even see the sunrise. But my God is the God of the meanwhile. While I am in this cocoon of self-pity, my God is saying, I'm still lifting up my children around you. My God is a God of the meanwhile. While I am not doing the work that he put me on earth to do, God puts in that adverb. Meanwhile puts me to the side. God is still raining blessings on the just and the unjust. You understand? Isn't it a great thing to worship the God of meanwhile? Meanwhile, while the brother is not even thinking about what condition his brother is in, the father is on the rooftop and he sees the shape of someone familiar. He walks like, could it be? He, he's a little older He's less in shape, but it looks like. And before the father can confirm that it's his younger son, he's running down the road. I got to get to him. I've got to, I can't wait for him to get here. He's like, he's, you know, I love the story of Joseph. Joseph's Egyptian name was Zapanath Paneah. And he's the prime minister of Egypt. And after he is finally reconciled with his brothers and he sent them with carts, go, bring my father Jacob back here. Bring him back so I can take care of my dad. Before Jacob can get across the border into Egypt, you know what Joseph's doing? Chariots of Egypt are rushing just to reunite with Jacob. Joseph can't wait for the father to get here. He's got to go out there and he's got to ride with him back to the palaces of Egypt. What a powerful thing when the father can't wait. Just five minutes. Have some decorum, dad. He's going to be here. He's walking this way. In our day, that's the father running out to the Uber that's turning onto the street 
Dad, what are you going to do? Are you going to run next to the Uber as we get to the house? I couldn't wait. I just had to see you, even if it's I'm running next to the car and you roll down the window. I couldn't wait. I've missed you so much. That's what's happening in the meanwhile. And the older brother has absolutely no idea that this is going on. See, he was out in the field earning the money that needed to be made. He's out in the field keeping the business afloat. I'm doing all of this. So as he approaches the house, he, he hears music. He hears dancing and laughter. Lights are on in rooms that light hasn't been on in years. The music, boom, 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 boom. Slide to the left, boom, boom. Slide to the right, boom, boom. Everybody clap your hand. And they are all having a great time, and he's going, what's going on? And as he gets closer, he starts smelling barbecue. You know what barbecue does? See, you guys act like, well, we're vegan, so... I'm talking about in your pre-vegan days. <laughs> that smells like veal. Wait a minute. You mean the fatted calf? You know what the fatted calf is. That's the calf that doesn't have to graze out there trying to find tufts of grass because that's the calf that gets room service. You've got your own room and we'll feed you because we want you nice and hefty. We don't want any tough muscle when we uh, do what we're going to do. And we only got one of them because we can't afford to have a whole bunch of them. They're, they're just freeloaders. We only have one of them and the fatted calf has been killed. So let's look at this, verse 25. Our time is fast spent. Now his elder son was in the field. Meanwhile, his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother is come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. And the eldest brother was angry and began to pout. What? I'm not going in. Now the father has another dilemma. He's celebrating with the son who has come back. And he realizes, I have another son who's already left. What do you do when the son is coming back and the one you... But I want to stay and... But I want him to... You know what our father does? Our father leaves the party and goes outside to the pouting son. Come in, your brother's here. The eldest son says, you mean your son is here? 
No, come in. Your brother, he's here. He's gone. He was dead to us, and now he's alive again. Come into the party. And all the eldest brother can do is say, I stayed here. I slaved over this place for you, and you never even gave me, never even gave me a goat for me to celebrate with my friends. I, I did all of this, and you never gave me one thing. And the father is taken aback. What do you mean? You're always with me. You got me. Isn't that better than a fatted calf? You got me. Here's where Jesus is a master of theater. You know, he didn't finish this parable. See, Jesus was giving this parable to the leaders who said, if you really were a prophet, you wouldn't associate with the people that you're associating with. And the eldest son in this story is the church. Richardson, the eldest son is us. And Jesus doesn't finish it. Read it in whatever gospel you want to read it in. It doesn't get finished. We never know whether the eldest son comes into the party or not. Jesus leaves it hanging. You know why? We get to write the ending. You understand that? We determine how this parable ends. Are we going to stay outside and say, God, I gave out tracts 50 Saturdays a year. I was at communion every week. I led the Pathfinder Club. I drove those, those stinky attitude adolescents up to Oshkosh, and I drove them back. Never ask anything. But did anybody recognize me? Did they even give me a certificate of completion? No. And yet, that tattooed, body-pierced lesbian comes into Richardson Church, and everybody is thrilled. I'm not going in. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't do it. And so the father comes out to the parking lot and says, don't you understand? All heaven rejoices when one who is lost comes back. Richardson, do you rejoice when one who is lost comes back? It doesn't matter what they look like. The fact is they came back. And they didn't come back of their own accord. The father went out and brought them back. We're the eldest son. How does the story end? I pray that I go into the party. I pray that I celebrate 
that one who is lost comes back. I pray, you know, that some of us, if God let it be so, and praise God that he doesn't, if God let it be so, we would go to heaven and we would complain. Lord, most respectfully, I have to lodge a complaint. What is that? Now, don't get me wrong. I have nothing against him. But I had to follow your rules for 78 years before I got here. And the thief on the cross got to do everything he wanted to do. And then right before his life is taken from him, you're patting him on the back, and he gets to come up here. And I don't think it's fair. Now, we know that that scenario will never occur, because if that's the attitude we have, we're not there. Richardson, it's time for us to write the end of the story. God is waiting for his church to write the end of his unfinished parable. How do you do it? Fall in love with Jesus again. Study his life. Ellen White says if we would just study his life, death, one hour a day, we would be completely changed. Study his life. Fall in love with him again. Realize, realize, every one of us has stepped on a duck. It don't matter how righteous you think you are. You stepped on a duck. You stepped on many ducks. And we've got eternity shackled to the most vile, slave-driving master Lucifer, Satan himself. And all we do is have to look up and see the Father calling us home. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. Father in heaven, thank you for your explicit stories that help us to understand the love that you have for us. There's a spiritual law in effect. When your love is demonstrated, when your love is observed, then your love constrains us. So Father, we just ask that you would show us your love even more explicitly than you have. Another way of putting it, Father, when your son came here, he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all unto me. So, Father, I pray for Richardson Church in particular, the youth here at Richardson Church. Help them to be able to see you. Help them to fall in love with you again and again. And then, Father, we're going to be thrilled to see the actions that arise from this. Father, we just long for you to finish this work and we know that we can be a hindrance but don't give up on us 
And we promise, Father, if you don't give up on us, we will come into the party rejoicing that that one that was lost has been found. In the name of your lovely son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you were blessed by this sermon. Next week, we'll continue our journey through Game Changers. So bring a friend, listen, have a conversation, and remember, you're in our prayers.